Job chapter 25, as we continue our study, if you didn't get the notes, the men will move around the auditorium and they'll hand you those notes as we continue in this section of the book of Job. And thank you, thank you, thank you for being here this evening, for taking the time to come and join us for this study. We all have heard the stories or seen the films, different things about the, the battle of Thermopylae where those Spartans, the 300 plus, there were some other Greek soldiers that joined them. They held that pass while 100,000 Persians were trying to invade into Greece. And it's a, just a, a classic historical battle that changed uh, history at that time that they were there, they were brave, they were holding it against odds that they knew there was a suicide mission, but they were going to do it, and they stayed there. There's an interesting quote that comes out of history by one of their most famous Spartan soldiers uh, who was, besides King Leonidas, he was one of those who was the leaders of the groups. His Denesis is his name, or I'm not probably saying it right, but Denesis was told that when the Persian army comes, they have so many people who will be shooting arrows that it'll darken the sky. It'll just blot out the sun with all the arrows. That's how massive this army is. And he said, fine, that's good. Then we're at least going to be able to fight in the shade. Now, what a spirit. Okay, just to say, despite these odds and despite all of the, the opposition we're getting, we're going to stand true. We're going to do what we think is really committed. That's where Job is. Job is facing innumerable odds. It's three to one, actually, that, that may not seem much to you, but these guys have beaten him down. And he is just saying, wait a minute, I'm just going to hold firm. I'm going to be solid as a rock. And what happens in this section of the book is it's very interesting how, you go, how Job responds to this, these comments. It starts off with Bildad's speech. Bildad is the second of the three men who speaks, and it's very appropriate that he's going to have chapter 25, which is just a, a less than a handful of verses, basically. It's one of the shortest passages that fits him because he's shoe height, uh, you know, in size. Here he is, he's the Bildad the shoe height, he's going to speak, and he says something that they've been saying all along. And so if you read through, just pick up with me in chapter 25. Then answer Bildad to the Shuhite. He says, Dominion and fear are with him. That's God. He makes peace in his high places. Is there any number of his armies? And upon whom doth not his light arise? How then can a man be justified with God? Or how can he be clean that is born of a woman? Behold, even to the moon, and it shineth not. Yea, the stars are not pure in his sight. How much less... That is, a, that is a worm, and the son of man, which is a worm. Interesting what he says. And, and let's, let's set this context, and then let me dissect what he says and Job's response. In order to remember what's going on, let's just kind of chart it. You don't have any notes. You can take what you want, or you just go by memory. The three men that Job has been talking to, they are basically saying several things. They are saying God is holy and pure. They are saying God is greater than all men. They are saying all men are born sinners. How would you respond to those three statements? Agree or disagree? We would agree. We would absolutely agree. Here's where they shift. They say God punishes all wicked men in this lifetime and with sufferings that come very soon and severe in the wicked person's life. So this is in their light, this is a fact. All wicked people suffer in this life. They make this comment. They say that the wicked never prosper in this life. They make this comment that God gives only good to the righteous individuals. The righteous individuals only experience good things, comfortable things. Uh, since Job is suffering, he has great sins in his life. And then they make this comment. Job is not a righteous man. 
Job is not righteous at all. Now, that brings them to the conclusion Job needs to repent. Now, in order to understand their conversations, you have to keep this in mind. Here's where Job is coming from. Job is saying God is holy and pure. We all agree with that. God is greater than all men. They all agree on that. All men are born sinners. They all agree with it. Here's where the change goes. Job will contend that God might punish wicked people in this lifetime, but surely he punishes them in the second, in the afterlife. Would you agree with Job? Or would you agree with the three men? Job. We're with Job. Because Job is speaking biblical truth. Job says that the wicked might prosper in this life. Is that true? Yes, okay, that's true. God gives both good and bad experiences to the righteous. You and I might experience good, we might experience what, the, what we think is a bad experience. True? Illnesses, things like that, bankruptcy, does that happen to believers? Yes, yes, okay. You might have a car accident, you might have some, you might flunk a test, whatever. Um, Job is saying, I am not suffering because of sin, I don't know why I'm suffering. I don't have any idea. That's where Job's contention. Job is going to say, I am living righteously. I, I believed in God. I've been, been born again, if you would use that New Testament term on the Old Testament. And so Job is not saying, I need to repent. Job is saying, I want to know why. I really think in the, that, I, that I need to know why. By the way, this is where God chews Job out at the end of the book. The word that Job uses here is, I need to know why. Does Job need to know why? No, that's where God will rebuke him. So in that, in that very simple explanation, you can see where there's a divergence between the two. Okay, how they apply some truth that is very basic. Now, what Bildad does is Bildad is talking and he's responding to Job. Job has eight times now in the book said, I am righteous, I am right with God, I have no secret sin. This leads to what Bildad is going to say. Bildad's going to say to Job, you know, you're, you're just, you're, you're wrong because Job is saying, I'm right with God. I want my time. I want to be able to talk to God. I want my day in court with God. I want to be able to say, God, here's my life. True, false. This is my life. And I'm confident that if I can have that conversation with God, God will say, no more suffering. And Job is confident in that. And he's confident in his own thinking that he says, you know, and I believe that eventually God will help me to shine as gold. 23.10 that we looked at this morning. So Bildad is going to respond to this. Job, he doesn't think Job is righteous. He doesn't think that Job yeah, is going to be let off the hook. He thinks that Job deserves it. And so chapter 25 is coming from a con, uh, Bildad's point of view. Is, Job, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Now here's what Bildad says. Bildad says basically God is way above men. We all agree with that. Job would agree with it, but put it in its context and what he gets. He says God is way above men, including you, Job. And we read the phrases. God exudes or he's above all the dominion. He has power. He just creates an awe or a, a fear within people. He makes and forces peace in high places. He's the one in total control of even the heavenly forces. His armies are beyond numbering. His light his purity is known to all. It's, it's just broadcasted. God is holy, God is mighty, God is majestic. In fact, Romans says even creation shows the glory of God, right? Okay, so Bildad is saying all those and saying, Job, you know, God is way, is way above you and you are way below God. Okay, and he's getting to a point. And he makes the comments, he says, you, like all men, we, none of us, none of us can claim that we are justified before God. 
None of us can claim that we are spiritually clean from our birth because we've all been born of woman who our sin nature has come and even parts of creation are not as great as what we think they are. We think, parts, we think the moon is brilliant, but the, but the moon is a reflector. It's interesting that they knew this back then. Okay, the science part. This, by the way, this couple chapters are filled with science. That, that's interesting, but that's not where we're going. But he says, you know, the stars, they're not as great and glorious and shining forth like God. So he makes a conclusion. He comes to a point and he says, men are small and worthless before God. And he uses the phrase, he uses two different words. That my King James that I just read uses the same word, but it's two different words. Man's a worm and man's a maggot. Okay, we're really low. Now, I want to remind you about something. God never said this. Okay, God doesn't say this. This is what Bildad says. Bildad says we are worms, we are maggots, and it could be because Job has said I'm covered with all these worms. We don't know. But he's got, his conclusion is what's challenging here. Basically, what he's getting at is who do you think you are? to claim that you could stand before God and have your day in court with God. You're a nobody. You're a sinful, wormy, maggot creature in front of God. You are puny compared to all of creation. You have no right. You have no, no opportunity. You, you are vile in suggesting that you could stand and talk with God. Now remember what Job has said earlier this morning we looked at. Job says, when I think of God's greatness, how does it affect Job? I'm terrified. My heart is fainting. And Bildad is taking and not even hearing that part. Bildad is saying, you're proud, you're pompous, you think that God is caring about you. You're you're just a maggot. Now isn't this encouraging words? But that's where he's coming from. How dare you even suggest that God would pay attention to somebody like you. That's the gist of, of chapter 25. That's where, Joe, where Bildad, and he's not going to say much because he's frustrated. He's just at his point. You, are, you shouldn't even pray to God, is in essence. You shouldn't even think that you can understand you know, enough to be able to talk to God. And so he's saying all these. Now Job is going to respond. Job is going to talk, and Job's response, Job is going to set the record straight. And it goes all the way from chapter 27, 20, 26, it should be, from chapter 26 all the way through chapter 31. And it's a lengthy response. It's his last response. It's very long. And I'm going to break it down this evening. We're not going to do all the chapters. Thank the Lord. You're going to get out of here before midnight. And when he starts speaking, it's interesting that he starts up, just for your information. When he starts responding in the first part of chapter 26, he's using a you, 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 singular. But then when he starts responding through the rest of it from chapter 27 to 31, it's you, plural. And so he's going to be speaking and defending himself before all three men. And as he speaks... There's going to be sarcasm all the way through. It, for instance, it, when you read the first couple of verses of chapter 26, Hast thou helped him that is without power? Have you saved thou, you know, how savest thou the arm that has no strength? How have you counseled him that hath no wisdom? Me, you know, Job is saying, you have, Oh man, you've done me so much good with these words of encouragement that I'm a worm and I'm a maggot. Thank you so much for those, ple- those precious, encouraging, uplifting words, Bildad. And then he goes on and he talks and he makes some comments. Now, you, you want to get a gist of where, how Job is responding. In verse 4, he asks the question, To whom have you uttered words? 
Whose spirit came from you? Okay, where are you getting your information, Bildad? You know, who's speaking to you? And Job is going to make it clear. Let's jump to the next chapter. Job is going to make it clear that when he speaks, he's confident he knows who's guiding him. Jump up to chapter 27, verse 4. uh, Verse 3. All the while my breath is in me, and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils. My lips shall not speak wickedness, nor my tongue utter deceit. Jump down to verse 11. I will teach you by... He's confident that who's he speaking on behalf of? The God. By the hand of God, that which is with the Almighty will I not conceal. And so Bildad, Job is saying, Bildad, you're speaking where I don't know where you're getting your information, your spiritual truths, but I'm going to tell you this. I know I'm confident that I'm speaking biblical truth. That's how we would say it today. And so he's going to set the record straight. Here's the statement. So if I were to dissect the book this way, which I get the opportunity to because I'm up in front. So here's the way I'm dissecting this statement of how he's setting the record straight. And it makes perfect sense to me. For you who are better scholars, you can correct me later. I think what he does in this book is when he responds to Bill Dad, he's going to basically say, God is more amazing than you think. And, and when I get to the end, you'll understand a little bit better. God is more amazing than you think. You say God is in control. God is more brilliant than the stars. God is above mankind. That's true. But let me tell you more about God than what you realize. And he goes into a discussion about God in chapter 26, starting with verse 5. He says, the dead things are formed from what? The dead things literally is the, what do you put up here? The Rephaim. Rephaim. It's the word that is used sometimes for the giant peoples can be giant creatures, it could be the giant spirits, and sometimes it's translated giants and sometimes it's translated dead. And so there's that confusion by authors exactly what it is. But he's talking about, in the way it sounds like, he's talking about the dead things are made to move under the waters. A lot of the ancient world, in some of their writings that are extra-biblical writings, they talked about the, the abode of the dead was not only under the earth, but there was most of it was under the ocean depths, in the ground underneath the oceans. And so is he using that common ancient Near East reference to saying, God is seeing, God is over even the realm of the dead. He goes on, God sees everything in Sheol. That's why it's probably what it is. Hell is naked before him and, dis- the de- and destruction has no covering. He set, stretched out the north. That is that North Pole idea that he established the boundaries, the magnetic you know, fields, uh, the North Pole and the spinning and the access. He didn't need any tools. He didn't need any puppet strings. He just put the world there and he hung it out there and nothing. And basically, he's, he says that statement about the world hangs empty in space upon nothing. He holds back the face of his throne. He goes on, spreads his clouds. He hath compassed the waters with bounds until the day and night come to an end. And as he keeps on going, that idea of binding up the waters, is he referring to the flood and how the waters were just rampant? But God bound them up to the point where he makes that comment in verse 8, the cloud is not rent. The word is torn, like, you know, you would, you would bind up all the water inside, inside of a bag of skin. You know, a stomach or a skin of, of a creature. And then it gets too full or, or it starts expanding and it would explode. He says, God binds the waters from the flood in the clouds and they don't burst forth. But they did back in the day of the flood. But he's talking about God's greatness and God's majesty in creation. 
He talks about that idea of the boundaries that he hath compassed or bound the waters with these boundaries. Is he talking about the flood going away and God raising up the mountains like he did after the flood and then putting the boundaries, the coastal lines? Is he talking rather about looking at the horizon and there's limits off in the horizon where the water has boundaries? I'm not sure which, but he's talking about how God has established all these and he's even established day and night. And he goes on, he talks about God's greatness and God's, he talks about the mountains in that sense that he says the pillars of heaven, that's reference to the mountains holding up the heavens. That's uh, refers to, referred to in Psalms and elsewhere. Pillars of heaven, they tremble. Do mountains ever have earthquakes? And that's what he's referring to. Do the mountains move? Who moves the mountains? Who shakes the mountains so that they, they have that earthquake? He's talking about God. And he makes the comment, he says, they're astonished at his reproof. He defies the sea with his power. Then by his understanding, he smites God through the proud. And so he's talking about all these different things about how God controls the lightning. God controls, you know, every aspect of it, the, the you know, that's formed. And even, not only does he garnish or control the heavens, but his hand formed the crooked serpent, that idea of the giant slithering creatures in the water, the Leviathan, okay, that he'll talk about later on. But he's, but he's making this point. This is where Job's coming from. God has more power than you think, Bildad. He has power over life and death. God has power over space, over physics. God has power over time and days. God has power over everything in creation, the mountains. And God has power over nature. God, has, God he says, has power over the seas. And I don't think Bildad would disagree with him, but here's where Job ends up. The next verse is so so impacting because saying all that he says God is so majestic God is so great God is so wonderful and then he makes this comment okay he's gonna gonna refer to that idea that lo there are parts of his ways but how little portion is heard but the thunder of his power who can understand and Job is taking this point of view God is so great but God takes an active role in creation even what you call puny, even what you call maggot-infested, God is interested in creation. God is transcendent, he's above all, but God is imminent, he's involved. And do we believe that? Do we believe God is almighty? But is God also very caring for our needs? Yeah, absolutely. Where Bildad and the others seem to say that God is so, so, uh, you know, so majestic, but he takes a kind of a hands off with the righteous and just lets them do. But what he says in verse 14 is amazing, the words he uses. Lo, these are parts. The word for parts in the Hebrew is, this is the fringe, this is the border, this is the coastline. He says, this is the coastline of his ways. What I have just described, Job is saying, is only the coastline of God's majesty, greatness, and what we can know about God. Let's see if we can illustrate this way. If we were to go back and follow, follow those people in the 14, 1500s that came to America, and they landed upon the borders, what if they had stayed just within the boundaries of the coastline? And they said, this is what America's like. America has some trees and it's sandy soil. Was there a whole lot more to America inland? Yeah. And he's saying, this is the way we are spiritually. We only get to see a little bit of God, but there is so much more to God. There are so many more amazing aspects of God. 
that we ought not just to stop and say, this is the way God is. This is the way God works. This is how it, it, how it functions. When there is so much more to God. In fact, he makes the comment, the next phrase, okay, that he makes the comment. He says, but how little of a debor. A debor is only a small portion of a big speech. There is so much more. You know, there's, what, what we know is just a little bit of what is known, no, what could be known of God. Well, that makes sense because they have very little revelation and we've got so much more, but even is there so much more about God that we don't know? And so he's describing the majesty of God. He is saying to Bildad, there is so much more and you guys claim to know him so well. None of us knows him as well as we can. He is so much, so you say that this is the way God always works. I want to suggest to you that he's beyond our comprehension and our understanding that we ought not to put God in a box. He is saying, basically, he is saying God does care for his creation. God does care for the worm-like creatures, as you call us. I think that's an amazing verse. I think it's a wonderfully challenging verse. That this verse, after that he's in response, he is saying, my God is so mighty and so majestic, but he cares for me. I think I shared with you, it's just been running through my mind, that there was a guy in college that sang one song. I don't know the name of the song. I just remember one little phrase. He that talked about God's greatness, and it's somehow, somewhere, Alan, you're the expert in knowing different tunes and songs that, you know, uh, you can name that tune like nobody I've known. And, it, but there's, my God is so big that he created the universe, but he's so small he can live in my heart. And it's an amazing thought. It's just, and that's where Job's at. Job is saying, you guys stop making this concrete statements about this is God, this is the way he works, and we figured God out. And Job is saying, God is beyond our comprehension at times. So here's the challenge that, for me, from what Job said, as he sets the record straight, it's just like, if God is so awesome, and, he's, and we're just on the coast of getting to know and explore, then you and I should be, every day in our spiritual life, moving inland in our relationship with Christ to get to know him more and more. We should be exploring his word more and more and more. What does this teach me about God? We should be spending time, if, every opportunity we have, let's listen, let's study, let's learn from God's word. Let's hear about it because he is so... Anybody got a word for this? He's so profound. He is so vast. He is so totally incomprehensible. He's just amazing. We should be reading books about God. Picking up a theological book, picking up something like a, a Tozer's book that talks about the knowledge of the holy, and read it through like 10 times before you probably get to understand what Tozer says. The guy's profound in his writing. It's amazing. We should learn more and study. And it's good to understand science just to see, you know, that simplicity of how God has this universe working. It's amazing because he's amazing. We should take opportunity 
And is there anything wrong with, with going and getting some, some courses and some classes on Bible study, like an institute or a Bible college, some classes and courses that would help you for the rest of your life to know about God? Tremendous. Tremendous challenge to explore God. And that's what he's saying to Bildad. You think you got this down pat, buddy? You need to just continuously explore God. Then he moves into another section. He's got to respond to him. And I think this is what he's saying, and I understand from going through in the next few verses that in chapter 27, he's going to shift the gears here, and he's going to say, oh, by the way, let me talk about myself for a few moments. I'm not as bad as you think. I'm not this maggot worm-like creature that God wants nothing to do with. And, and he's not being arrogant. He's not being pompous. He's just going gonna, gonna to make a vow. He's going to call to witness here. Look at verse 2. As God lives, who hath taken away my judgment, and the Almighty who hath vexed my soul, all the while my breath is in me, and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips shall not speak wickedness, nor my tongue utter deceit. God forbid that I should justify you guys. Till I die, I will not remove my integrity from me. My righteousness I hold fast and will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me so long as I live. What's he saying? He's just saying, here's my vow. This is what I'm convinced of. As long as I have breath, God forbid that I'm going to say you guys are right. God forbid that I'm going to give in to you. Till I die, I'm not going to deny my integrity. I'm not going to remove it or deny it. It's the same word. I'm not going to give it up. I'm not going to say, you're right, I'm wrong, I've done something wicked. I'm not going to do that. And, you know, I'm going to hold on to being righteous and my own conscience will not convict me. I haven't got some secret sin. I'm not going to give in. I'm, I'm, I'm right with God, not because I'm so great, but because God has forgiven me. And I'm not going to let you convince me that I'm condemned before God. I wish I knew this verse years ago. When I first got saved, I struggled with knowing for sure I was on my way to heaven. I battled with that idea. I battled with the concept that every time after I got saved and prayed and asked the Lord to save me, if I fell in the faith and if I let some word slip out of my mouth that I was so used to using, some cuss word, if that happened, all of a sudden I just felt like inside... I felt like I'm a worm and I'm a maggot and how could God love me? What he is basically saying is something I needed to know. There is now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. This is an important statement he's making to these guys. I am not condemned. I have faith in God. I trust in God and God is not looking at me like, like a maggot that he wants to get rid of and destroy. So he makes that statement, and then, okay, and then what he does is setting the record straight. You know, he's not saying that he's perfect. He's never claimed that. But he's claiming, and neither do we, yes? Yes, is that true? We don't claim we're perfect. We just claim we're, we're forgiven. We're forgiven. And nobody is going to re-put that guilt on us again. True? Okay, so that's where he's going. And then the next part of the chapter is the most confusing part of the study so far for me. Not for you, but for me. And so the next part, it strikes me that now he is saying to these guys, this is what you guys deserve. 
he basically starts off in verse 7, and you have to read through the whole. Let mine enemy be as the wicked, and he that rises up against me as the unrighteous. Well, that's those guys. That's what he's saying to them. For what is the hope of the hypocrite, though he hath gained when he taketh away his own soul? Will God hear their cry when their trouble comes upon him? Etc., etc., etc. This is where I get a little bit confused because what happens is the next section is the rest of the chapter, basically, Job says exactly what Zophar had said a couple, three, four chapters ahead of time that we looked at last week. Zophar had said... The wicked are going to be damned in this world. The wicked will lose everything. The wicked will lose their kids, their finances. They will be robbed. All those things. That's what Zophar said. And in chapter 20, at the very end of the verse, I think it's verse 34, Job said, you have spoken foolishly. You have spoken unwisely. And I, do, and I disagree with you. And now, here in this chapter, starting in from about verse 13 on, he says basically the same things Zophar said. So, what's going on? Job, what's happened here? You, you can't call them foolish and saying you know, wrong thoughts and now you say the same thing. It doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work. So Job has either been worn down to agree with them, but that doesn't fit the context because what has he just vowed? I am never going to agree with you guys. So it can't be that he's worn down. There's got to be one of two other things here that's happening. Back in the ancient days, and the Jews picked up on this in their court system, if you accuse somebody of something and you took them to court, so if, if I want to do something, Harvey, you're sitting in the front. You just became a sermon illustration. That'll teach you to sit there. Okay, that's why nobody else does. Okay, so if, if I want to take Harvey to court and I want to accuse him of something, and it's a lie, but I want him punished, and it's proven that I have falsely accused him, what happens to me? I get the punishment that, would, that I wanted him to have. That's the way the ancient systems worked. The Jews picked up on some of that. So is Job saying in this text, where he says in this passage, he says, I want my enemies condemned. And this is what you have said should happen to the wicked. And now he's quoting all of what they said as if he is heaping it back upon them to experience what they said the wicked should experience. That fits some of the context. Or is he doing this in verse 12? In verse 12, Behold, all you yourselves have seen it. Why then are you thus altogether vain? And he has talked about... Uh, verse 11, I will teach you by the hand of the Almighty that which is, you know, I will not conceal, and you're, because your talking has been empty. So I'm going to tell you truth, because what you have said is empty. And so is he then repeating their empty words? This is what you have said that is totally foolish, and he's quoting them. And so it's a rehearsal of those things that he's already rejected, but he's saying, this is what you said. This is what you said. Which one is it? I'll flip the coin. Both of them make perfect sense to explain what is happening in the text. But surely, surely, and that's what confuses some of us when we read through the book. How is it Job has condemned these thinking, this thinking, but he's speaking it? Because he's speaking it for condemning them or repeating their foolish statement. It's one of those two. 
But his whole point has already been made. His point is, I'm not as bad as you think. I am, I am righteous before God. Despite what you say, God doesn't look at me like a maggot, like a worm. And so when I look at it, the challenge to me is, could I make that same statement as Job? Could you make that statement that I, I know, I know my conscience will not condemn me. I know I am saved. That he, whatever Satan may say, I know I'm not condemned for my sin. It's under the blood. You need to be born again, and then that's the case. That you can never be condemned. The accuser cannot accuse you because you have a defender standing in heaven that says, put it to my account. And let's take a step further. Could you pillow your head tonight and say, I have lived a righteous life this day. I have done what God has wanted me to do. I have a clean conscience. So here he is, this born-again man. He is talking about that idea that in his life, and we looked at this already, that he has lived a life of integrity. Do you live a life that people would say, that's a righteous person, the way he acts on the field of play? The way he works and what he says when we're at the lunchroom at work. You're righteous the way you respond to the kids. Uh, you're righteous in how when you get together and there's some gab session going on, you live righteously by, the, by what you say and what you don't say. You're righteous when it comes to your entertainment, what you allow to view, to think upon. That you are doing it in a way and you have an attitude, the way you treat people, the way you handle your finances, the way you take, fill out your tax forms, that you are righteous. Well, Job said he could. In his business dealings and whatever he has done, do your words and actions fit that lifestyle? So the thought I would walk away is like this. The thought is, okay, I need to learn more and more about God. That's that first thought. Okay, this one is I need to live, excuse me, I'll back up there. Okay, to live more like him. To live more like him. Okay, I'm not as bad as you think. I need to live more like him. Let's do the third part of the passage. The third part of the passage is another shift. It's, it's another gear. It, just got, it goes to a wholly, whole different thought. What he does in chapter 28 as he continues his response is he shifts gears. But he's still responding to Bildad. And basically what I think he is saying is you are not the source of wisdom like you think you are. In other words, you're not as smart as you claim you are. That's what he's going to say to Bildad. Oh, and by the way, by this time in the book, who is he speaking to? Remember I already said, starting with chapter 27, all the yous are plural. So when he talks and he says, you are not the source of wisdom like you think you are, he's talking to Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And remember what they have done up to this point. They have said, we are like the sages of old. They have said, we have wisdom. Why don't you listen to us? And so now he's responding at the very end. This is the last part of the discussion. He's saying, you guys, you guys aren't as, you're not as clever as you think you are. And so what he does in this is Job then is going to deal with the most important question. And it shows up in verse 12. This is the gist of, the, of chapter 28. Where shall wisdom be found? Where is the place of understanding? That's the key verse in this, in this discussion. Where he's going. What's the topic? The topic is all about wisdom. They've mocked Job. They said, oh, you think you're wise. We're so much wiser. And he says, okay, real wisdom is found in God. It's not found in, and remember some of the things they've said so far? This is the way 
our fathers said. This is the way we've always thought. It's not found in tradition. Real wisdom is found in God. And that's where he's going to end up this discussion. That's where he's... So what happens at the beginning of the chapter is he starts talking about what men do, what clever men do in the planet. He starts talking in verse 28. Surely there is a vein for the silver and a place for the gold where they find it. Iron is taken out of the earth and brass is molten out of the stone. He sets it at one end of the darkness, searches out all perfection, the stones of darkness. The flood breaks forth, uh, breaks out from the inhabitant. Even the waters forgotten of the foot, they are dried up. What is he talking? He's talking about mining. He's talking about what was happening in Old Testament times when they would go after the gems, that which was real priceless. How when they were, they were digging for riches, they would dig down into the earth. These are some actual reprints of some ancient different pictographs defining how people are working underground. And they would go after the gold, the silver. They would go after the, the rubies and the gems. And they went into the depths of the earth, places that were, where darkness was. And they would work hard to find these riches. And they would have the dangers of water that would be the underwater currents and rivers. They would have the dangers of the heat. Keep on reading, you'll talk about the fire. Okay, that shows up. That's underneath their feet. And so it talks about how even the animals, the animals, they don't even know where men go to find these jewels. They don't, they don't go there. This is something that men do exclusively, and they seek after the gems. But he talks about how men will even overturn the mountains. Yeah, look at verse 9. He puts forth his hand upon the rock. It, the he is not God. It's people searching for riches. He put forth his hand upon the rock. He overturns the mountains by the roots. He cuts out rivers among the rocks. His eye sees every precious thing. The idea is that men, even underwater, they'll build up dams to protect themselves while they're working under it. Why do, why do people go through all this effort? For riches. Because people value gems. It is something that is so important to the people that are involved with this. And Job's analogy is what? The greatest rich, riches, rich, uh, riches, I guess, the greatest gem you can find is wisdom. Is wisdom. That's the best gem. And so he's going to talk and he's describing wisdom as rare priceless, precious to all people. And so he's going to say, men, go through all this effort to find a ruby. They go through all this effort to find an emerald. But how much effort will they go through to find wisdom? And then he talks about in, the, in part of the chapter, after he makes this comment, we, we should probably pause and just look at verse 12 again. Where shall wisdom be found? By the way, do you see what he's talking about? The way that men find or go after riches, where is wisdom found? It's not natural. It's not inherent. It's not automatic. It takes effort. Now, we, we need to define what wisdom and understanding is. Okay? What the words mean, and we can do all the... Let's just summarize. They're the ability to know how to live right. Okay? The ability to know how to live right. That's wisdom. Does it take wisdom to get along with people? Does it take wisdom to raise kids? Does it take wisdom to have a godly marriage? Oh, yeah. Does it take wisdom to handle your finances right? Does it take wisdom to know a career decision that would fulfill what God has desired and designed for your life? 
You, you think about it, okay? Wisdom is basically seeing things in life from God's point of view. I don't always do that. You probably do, but I don't. If I get really ticked about something, I see it from my point of view. And I have a tough time seeing it from somebody else's point of view. And frequently, I don't want to see it from God's point of view. Because if I look at it from God's point of view, I'm wrong and I have to confess to people. And the wisdom says, well, okay, now stop. You have to, dis- you got to define. It's basically living in a way that accomplishes what God has for goals for our life. By the way, what are God's, his ultimate goals? Glorify him. But what are his goals, if you were to summarize them, what are his two greatest commandments for you? Yeah, right? To love the Lord thy God with all the heart, thy soul, thy mind, thy strength. And then the second goal is, okay, to love others as you love yourself. Wisdom and understanding is getting the ability to do these two things. Now, where do we get that? Where does it come from? That's where Job's at. Job is saying, okay, he rehearses all the greatness of wisdom in in verse 13 and following talks about men know the price thereof neither is it found in the land of the living the deeps don't say it they say it's not in me the sea says it's not in me it cannot be gotten for gold neither shall silver be weighed for it it cannot be valued and he goes on and talks about how this wisdom is so rare it's something we can't get though it's better than any riches that we have and then he comes to a section verse 23 is where we want to wind down here God understands the way. By the way, in the Hebrew, the way it's structured, God is the very emphatic word here. So you may want to underline, circle it. That's the way Job is saying. God understands the way thereof. He understands wisdom. He knows the place where it's at, where you can find it. For he looks to the ends of the earth. He sees under the whole heaven. He makes the weight for the winds. God measures the waters by measure. When he decrees for rain and the way of the lightning and the thunder, did he see it? Did he? He's saying, God who knows everything. God who is in charge of everything. The God who orders all of nature. He understands wisdom. He declared it. He prepared it. He examined it to make sure it was what it needs to be. And then he says, here it is. Here it is. This, this great, great gift of God, wisdom. He says, here's where it's at. And he concludes that God is the source of the wisdom. Wisdom, I, 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 I don't know how else to say it, so let me do it this way. Wisdom is not found in degrees. Wisdom isn't found in exploring science and math. Wisdom isn't found in life's experiences. And just going through them. Is, the, is any of this wrong? Is it good to study science? Is it good to study mathematics? Okay, is it good to have technology? You got to say yes or get rid of your phones. Okay. Okay, there's nothing wrong with these things. But they don't make you wise. Okay, that's his point. Yeah, okay, surfing the internet doesn't make you wise. Okay, could it help in some occasions? Sure, sure. But, you know, conversations, getting together and let's discuss life. And let's debate the issues of life. Is that the source of wisdom? Well, it can be helpful thoughts. Okay? Is, it, is wisdom found in achieving business successes? Is wisdom found in just getting old? <laughs> okay. 
I guess I'm getting old. You, you know, the young people, you think I'm ancient. And I got to tell you, getting old doesn't make you wise in and of itself. If it does one thing, it makes you realize how much you don't know. Is wisdom in your bank account? Because you have saved more than others, that makes you wise. Really? Then, then is wisdom determined by dollars? I know some rich, rich people who are really kind of dumb when it comes to living. <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble if I go any further than that one. Okay. Reading lots of books. That, that makes us wise automatically. Or listening to friends or instructors. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of these things. These do things, these are beneficial. They are helpful. They can be used. But that is not where wisdom is found. And you and I need to grab this more than anybody else. We need to get a hold of this. Wisdom isn't found in busyness of life. He concludes the chapter and he says these things are good. These things are great. They'll help us get good grades. They'll help you get degrees. And I know how to do that. I've done it. But that didn't make me wise. It's not found in that stuff. He says, real wisdom, real wisdom. And he he concludes the chapter with it. And he uses the words, behold. Look, listen. This is Bildad, 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 Eliphaz, Zophar. Listen, behold, this is it. Here it is, I'm telling you. It's the fear of the Lord. It's the fear of the Lord. Wisdom in the fear of the Lord, it's that idea of submitting to God, recognizing he's Lord, your servant. He's creator, we're creature. It is an attitude that I am not that, that magnificent. He is. He's awesome, not me. The fear of the Lord. This is the beginning of it. Considering the greatness of God. In fact, when Job considered the greatness of God, what did he say this morning as we looked at? What was his natural response? Trembling. I felt faint of heart. Because God is so amazing compared to me. Now that doesn't mean I'm a maggot and he doesn't care for me. He does. But this is where it starts. This is wisdom. He says that's wisdom. And then he goes on. To depart from evil is understanding. The literally says to put it away. To put away wrongdoing. One author I thought he said it so cleverly. It is the hatred of sin. The hatred of sin is the beginning of understanding. I'm not so sure that I have fully understood that at times. I'm not so sure that I have hated gossip. That I have hated greed. That I have hated jealousy. He said, but that's where the beginning of wisdom is. Hating that which God says is wrong. A holy life. Fearing the Lord in a, in a proper way. That's where understanding is. And so he comes... And, and, but do, do you see the words... You know, fearing the Lord, departing from evil. Those are the same two Hebrew words that showed up in the beginning of the book that said, Job is one that fears the Lord and escheweth evil is that same idea, to depart, same word, to depart from evil. Job knows where he's coming from. He's lived this way. He knows it's possible. And he says, basically, this is, this is it. So... Okay, let's bring it all together. What do we do with these three chapters besides going, we got through it? What do we do with it? Uh, let's, let's make the. Since God is far greater than what we think, 
and what Job's friends think, then we need to learn more and more about him. You and I should, as we, as we have the Christmas, let's learn more about him. This Christmas season, let's do some study on Christ. Let's learn a little bit more. Pick up a book. Pick up a study. Get some sermons. Look at it. Get under the word as much as you possibly can. Job is not as wicked as his friends thought, okay, where he's condemned. So let's live more like him, and Job is our human example that we should live. Let's conclude with this. Since you know, men aren't the source of wisdom, they're the source of knowledge and education, and we want to make sure that we respect and go after it that way. But since they're not the source of wisdom, like we think, then we need to long after it more and more. We need to go after the real source of wisdom more and more and more. And how do we do that? James says that if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. So let's convert that into modern-day practical Christianity. If we want wisdom, what's the one thing we need to start doing on a regular basis? Praying for it. Saying, God, give me wisdom. Understanding what we're asking for. Wisdom means that we're going to want to have a holy life. Wisdom means that we're going to respect God more and more. And then we know this. We know the Word of God is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Your commandments make me wiser, the psalmist says. So we not only pray, but what else do we do to get wisdom? We end up being in the Word. And not only do we end up being in the Word, we, we, we look at this and say, this is what it takes to stand for the Lord. This is, we've got to have this determination. We've got to have, the, no matter what the opposition, this is what I need. I need to be praying. I need to be in the Word. So be in God's Word and let God's Word be in you.